This is Poetry Off The Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, stay in character. Gregory Pardlow's father, Gregory Pardlow Sr., was larger than life. He was an upwardly mobile air traffic controller with a fancy car and a house on a cul-de-sac in New Jersey. A man who looked good in a suit and knew it. A union leader who liked to pepper his speech with words pulled from classic plays and poems. But in the early 80s, this proud man lost his job in the infamous air traffic controller strike of 1981. Striking was not allowed for federal employees, but the strikers had convinced themselves they couldn't possibly fire them all. Then Ronald Reagan did just that. More than 11,000 people were fired. Union leader Gregory Partlow Sr. among them. 35 years later, the man died, right when his son, the poet Gregory Partlow Jr., was putting the final touches on a memoir about his father, Big Greg, as he calls him, a narcissist, as he also calls him. He wanted to investigate how each of them had played their role with such dedication. I was my father's rival, Partlow writes, and he was mine. Today, eight years later, Gregory Pardlow has come out with a new poetry collection titled Spectral Evidence. In this collection, he looks at some of the other roles that have been scripted for him, that of Black Man in America, for instance. Although these days, he's not in America much. He lives in the United Arab Emirates, where he teaches at NYU. Here's our conversation. I wanted to ask you about Abu Dhabi. Because, like, you're a visiting professor, so are you there just a few weeks out of the year, or, like, how no, does it work? so I moved my whole family there in 2020. It was COVID, so my kids were eager to get, they was like, get us out of here, I don't care, go anywhere. So we've lived full-time in Abu Dhabi for the last three years. And what does your home look like? We live on campus, and I'm always kind of, awkward in, in talking about it because it's quite beautiful. <laughs> Why does that make you awkward? Uh, because, you know, the, the UAE is such an opulent, and, you know, <laughs> our, our images are very blingy, and, but the campus is quite tasteful, and our apartment is lovely. It's a very large, and I have a beautiful view of the Gulf. And What? Yeah, you can see the water yeah, from yes, your window? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and what do you see on the water? I mean, is it like, are people swimming? Is it like industry kind of, you know, ships no, bringing no. cargo? What are, pleasure well, boats? Like, what right is it? right now they're building a new island. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's very resort. Um, and then there's uh, a very high-end housing development uh, neighborhood and the Gulf. And we see, you know, several gradations of of blue and green moving out into the Gulf. It's pretty stunning. And when I think about the Gulf, I think about this kind of heat that you really don't want to be in for more than a few seconds. Like, yeah. Do you spend any time outside or do you feel like you just go from AC room from, to AC room? Well, it depends on the time of year. So from probably May to October, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time outside. I mean, one can, it's a dry heat, but we mostly go from the apartment down to the car in the parking garage, into the car, to the mall <laughs> in the parking garage, and, and then back up. But this time of year, it is fabulous. 
70, 80 degrees mm. almost every day. And who do you hang out with? Who do you socialize with there? Mostly other faculty. Yeah. 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 Obviously, we spend so much time together. Our families are there and our kids get to know each other. And so yeah. there's that. But I also play paddle and tennis. Okay. So paddle is kind of like pickleball is what's very popular here in the U.S. But overseas in Europe and in the Middle East, people are absolutely bonkers over paddle. So that's how I meet people. That's the kind of oh. social thing. I meet people from all industries and it's, a, it's mm. an equalizing. No, it's not. Because all the people I meet are, <laughs> are, yeah. are a certain class. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about yeah. all that, of course. So I was, um, my mother-in-law came to visit us mm. um, last summer. And we're driving around. She's like, oh, my goodness, this place is just so clean. It's just nobody litters here. I had to tell her, no, it's because in the middle of the night, <laughs> lots of people come out and are cleaning the city. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what was it like when you first moved from Bed-Stuy to Abu Dhabi? What was it like to see this completely different social structure? It wasn't that shocking. I mean, I Mm. (laughs) sadly, I'm I'm kind of used to that kind of stratification. But what was different was that I was very much a part of the (laughs) elite class there. So here, no matter what I do, I'm liable to face assumptions in any direction, either direction. But I'm extremely American there. It's just... <laughs> like what? what? What is something that you see yourself do and you're like, oof, I did not know I was so central casting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm clearly not local. Uh-huh. And how and, do people know that? Is it like the way you dress? Is it the way you... Well, as an as African-American, the darker-skinned people are, well, a lot of them are working in the middle of the night or in construction. But even the darker-skinned Arabs are wearing kunderas, the long robes in the right in the headgear. So I dress like somebody from New York. <laughs> yeah. And what else? Because, like, you know, the reason I'm asking you this is mm. because... Throughout your work, one of the themes that keeps Mm. coming up is seeing and being seen. And the problem with seeing yourself clearly kind of outside of whatever society projects onto you or your family projects onto you, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think nothing can like shock us into seeing Mm -hmm. ourselves anew, Mm -hmm. like moving to a foreign country. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and so I'm wondering, like, what were some of the things that you saw about yourself, maybe for the first time, that Mm. you hadn't noticed? Well, uh, probably the biggest difference, which was surprising to me, was they, um, I I felt like there was a weight off of me that I was not carrying there. I don't get looks of suspicion. So again, you know, very American, it's like, Wow, this is, must be what it feels like to, to be right to be the proverbial middle class white guy. Is you know I can go places and you know be welcomed without you know. I mean that's it, it's really hard to to put into words the because I don't. It's something other than microaggression, right? It, there's a, a 
a, just a kind of attention. There's a, a kind of disattention, perhaps, mm. here in the U.S., right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where nobody's holding the door or nobody notices I'm standing in line or, right, this kind of thing. But I'm present there socially in a way that's new. Certainly, James Baldwin, well, every writer who's left the United States, every African-American writer who's left the United States has, has talked about this and, and why one becomes uh, an expat. And I think all of that still holds, mm. sadly enough, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Like, I wonder how you look at your relationship to your blackness in that context. Like, do you feel less black or do you feel like you are just as black, but it just has a different connotation? Like, how do you That's see that change? That's a great question. Um, in the UAE, I think... Um, well, I'm I'm cosmopolitan. I am diasporic, right? Which is a very different thing from um, the the way I experience myself here. Uh, so we still have a, a community of African Americans. There are a lot of African Americans in the UAE. And that mm -hmm. is a common destination, and so we have friends, and we have Thanksgiving dinner, and and you know, and we see people who speak the same cultural language. So I'm still. Black, right, in that sense. And um, my students, you know, I code switch quite a bit in class and, you know, it puts my students at ease. And I do try and hold on to just a black culture, black American yeah. culture uh, when I'm in the classroom and when I'm, um, particularly when I'm in, in meetings. Also because I am almost always the only African American in the room. Again, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is still the yeah. same, pretty much. That's still the same. Yeah. I mean, particularly on campus, uh -huh. right? So all of the, uh, we, you know, our students are wildly diverse. They're from mm. every place you can imagine, which is fantastic. Our faculty are from the same handful of universities from Europe and the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> Can't help it, but reproduce the same things. Over I mean, and over. Yeah, exactly yeah. right, and yeah. that's what institutions do. Yeah. So I'm not shocked by it, but I, mm. uh, I find I have to do a lot of explaining, a lot of educating on. So, for example, there was a, a climate survey that had been done on on campus, and so the the conversation around diversity when I first arrived um, was just heating up there. Uh huh. And so a lot of the faculty, particularly from Europe, diversity was a why. What, what's, the, what's the point? And someone said, I suspect without any ill intent, you know, why would we want diversity when we should want excellence? <laughs> oh, God, I didn't just hear that. What, what do you do with your this face is, when someone this, says that? This is, you know, and... I mean, I had heard such things in the 90s, but this was a, a faculty person coming from, I think he was from Italy, mm. and it, it just didn't occur to him. Um, but if that's one measure of the racial intelligence quotient, perhaps, yeah. or even just identity intelligence or awareness, you can see that I there's a, a lot of work and and I end up in the job or on campus and in you know in these meetings doing a lot of emotional work that I thought I had put long behind me. Yeah. 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 And what about with your students? Not with the students. Ooh, the students are sharp. They're way ahead of me. 
I mean, and they're they're very much conscious of the world, and yeah. they have their political views, and they um, they have their sensitivities. What's interesting is how those sensitivities get expressed in the UAE, a place where political dissent is just you know unheard of, right? Is unthinkable, but they on campus, and and, and obviously we try to cultivate a, an environment where students are thinking vigorously and um, and critically, but it's nonetheless in the larger context of the UAE, and so they're mm-hmm. they're coming from places where. They're literal dictators. When we talk about dictators here, they're actual dictators. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what do you see now about your mm. life back home here that strikes you? So, um, Brittany, the basketball player. Uh huh. He was in prison in uh, Russia. In Russia, yeah. yeah. Griner. Um, yeah. So, when, when she got back, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but at any rate, this is how it lives in my head, whether mm-hmm. it's true or not. Um, she was standing for the anthem, national mm-hmm. anthem, and she said, "No, my my relationship to America is very different now." And mm-hmm. which is not to say that one forgives anything, but I think you know, being in places where rights are. Understood. I mean, it's, it's an abstract concept already. You know, to have the right to do something, the right to free speech, it's it is it is it is a fiction. It's a social fiction, and uh, no matter where you are, but the the way that we think about that those social fictions is very different here than than in, in a lot of places. So, I don't feel any um, uh, kind of repression, political repression in the UAE. But I know there are things you don't, I just don't say, I can't say. Like what? Well, like queer, for example. That is a word one does not use. Yeah. Um, You don't talk about transness. You don't talk about sexuality. You don't talk about gender because it leads to conversations about the, the quote unquote lines between genders. Um, you certainly don't criticize the government, right? Uh, and there are books that I've ordered for class that don't get approved. Mm. So, and who's doing <laughs> the approving or the not approving? Uh, it's a ministry outside of, of campus, right? So I, I can't get them into the country, in other words. Wow. Okay. And, and again, we can talk about free speech, around the world and and celebrate what wonderful freedoms and rights we have in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But no, it's <laughs> and there and there are clearly plenty of things one does not teach in the US. Yeah. Too, right? So if it's gender there, it's I mean I say facetiously, but it's black history here, yeah, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 Um speaking of which, mm. um mm. There's one thing that I'm always interested in when I'm talking to writers, and that's like how sometimes, you know, one book is written to settle the dust that the previous book kicked up. You know? uh, yeah. And the dust that I'm talking about in this case is your relationship to blackness, because in your previous publication, your yeah. uh, memoir, Air Traffic, which came out six years ago, you write, um, if I was raised black for the most part, it was for economic reasons and apathy. 
Growing up, my family was not observant, preferring mm -hmm. instead to derive our esprit de corps from the community of consumers we'd gather in fellowship with in the tabernacle of Macy's, the Mead Hall of Ikea. I am not, in other words, a practicing black. And uh, I know I'm not the first one to ask you about that. <laughs> you probably had to answer a few people when you wrote that. I am well aware. But here you are with your poetry collection, Spectral Evidence, which is deeply about you know, blackness in America and how mm -hmm. that affects how you see and oh, are seen. Mm. And so can you walk me through what happens between these two books? So um, what I learned from air traffic is that irony is not always <laughs> red. <laughs> And subtlety, nuance, in, in some cases, does not get picked up in prose in the way that it does and can, I think, in poetry. Oh, that's so interesting. I think readers of poetry are looking for what's not there. There is an understanding that there is a subtext, right? There's another layer of meaning. Readers of prose think what you see is all there is, right? And so when I write in Air Traffic, I'm not a practicing black, my intention is to problematize the notion of race, is to question the notion of race as something biological, right? It doesn't mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean what it says on the surface that I eschew my blackness uh -huh. or that I have a, a negative relationship to my blackness, but that it is something that one, and I want to be careful about this uh, as well, because the, the, the discourse around race is so deeply entrenched that one slips into a kind of, oh, I know this kind of person. I know how this kind of person thinks. I know what the logic is. And there's a self-hating logic that, you know, the, there's one track that the person falls into and, and we predict everything about the person. So what I'm hoping to get at, as I say, is, is suggesting a relationship to identity that is just not biological. I guess, and, and is not um, unquestionable. So one can... <laughs> minefields, minefields. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, why you're a writer. You know, you can think about exactly, it for a long can, time. Right, yeah. yes, yes, I can sit and play with it. So l let me rather than try and make sense of air traffic, go to spectral evidence. So the dust that you're referring to, what I'm trying to do in that book, in, in spectral evidence, is something similar in that um, there is a, a book called Racecraft by Kimberly and Barbara Fields. And in that book, these scholars talk about the metaphor of blood that we talk about race as, you know, a blood heritage. We talk about patrilineality, I guess, as something that is, um, that is in the blood. But as it's also constructed, what I inherit from a patrilineal sense, and I'm talking in a material sense, right? My, my father's property, my, my father's debts, perhaps, and, right? That kind of stuff is no more determined by nature. And, and this is what I really want to get at 
because one of the many, many things that frustrates me is in the is the conversations around affirmative action and meritocracy and this belief that I worked hard or my grandfather worked hard. And then behind that is the insinuation that your grandfather did not work as hard. And that enrages me. And the logic that I, I want to highlight and I'm kind of searching for ways to get around the, the deeply entrenched discourse, is that our circumstances are, are never wholly our own. I mean, our material circumstances. So there's always history and there's always community. No one exists in, in isolation. And I think there's a way that, as Americans, we you know, in this kind of celebration of the individual, in order to get there, we have to dissociate the individual from their history. And so while African-Americans are deeply attached to their history because, you know, everything that produced us, we understand as historical, the larger American community is trying to, you know, deny that history in order to suggest not that black people are not oppressed, but that white people have earned their quote unquote privilege. It's interesting because the way that I read that initial quote, right, the one about, you know, uh, I'm not a practicing black. I was most focused on that part, you know, that your family derived your esprit de corps from this community of consumers, you mm -hmm. know, uh, going to Macy's, going to Ikea. And I was taking this quote more in the sense of like, okay, it's not because I'm a black man writing a memoir that it needs to be about my blackness. Like what I really want to write about <clears throat> is um, our middle class striving. And, mm -hmm. you know, or like ambition, you know, as is the mm -hmm. tagline of your book and sort of, you know, my relationship to mm -hmm. being a part of this kind of grander sort of consumer yeah. uh, success or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you've made it when you can shop at these places. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because in spectral evidence, like I see more of a through line, actually, than sort of an opposition. Um, there's this poem in there called Theater. Oh, I mean, there, there's a few poems. They're all called Theater Selfies. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could read the one on page 68. Sure. Because uh, yeah. I think it also, like, gets at that sort of, you know, what you can spend is what you are worth, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah, sure. idea. So, can I borrow it? Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you the book. There you go. Thank you. Theater Selfie. At Richard Rogers Theater, I shrank my face to the box office window and confessed to the Lucite's voice vent that I'd told my wife a lie. I had hidden no Christmas gifts in the basement, nor yet acquired tickets to Hamilton from a youngest, as I'd boasted I would. Oblivious to cost, I was a hostage to the season and my ego forced to drain the ATM for my deliverance. The ticket guy pshawed, and like a chilly neighbor, acknowledged me enough to punctuate his snub. But the seat map online, I pleaded, showed several vacant dots in March. No seats, he snapped. 
And we went on like this until I looked it up on my phone. Those? He snarled. You can't... His pause, its meaning irretrievable now, was heavy with the ghosts of Broadway's sins. It was as if a voice offstage was force-feeding him the line, You can't afford those. His cheeks ripened to prove he'd heard it, just as I'd heard it, but that this time, maybe, he'd heard it in the way that I'd heard it. Face frozen, his eyes went floodlight, making me suddenly real. The veil had fallen between us, and we two stood outside the magic. We were our only audience. As one trained in this hackneyed improv, I knew that I might dress the specter of his fear in comedy to save him. I needed to draw him out of his head. You got kids? I asked. He nodded. But I needed to hear the emotion in his voice. What are you going to do, huh? I laughed. It's like, what do you want from me? Am I right? And he mirrored me, shaking his head. The things we do. He asked if I could bring my kid next Tuesday. Hells yeah, I said, careful to stay in character, though I wasn't sure where he was taking us. He bent to root beneath his desk. Then the lucite spit two miracles he must have set aside for someone else. The selfie we took that day tells a partial story. You see us, all teeth and safe as bros. You see me, holding the tickets like a peace sign. But you could never guess the price we paid to get them. That poem really messed me up. Like the end, you know, what, what is really most mm. unsettling is sort of the intimacy between the speaker of the poem and this, <laughs> this guy who's selling the tickets, you know? Like yeah, uh, they, totally. They're really having a, like a moment together, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, the veil had fallen between us. Mm -hmm. We stood outside the magic. We were our only audience. You so know? now the veil mm. is a W.E.B. Du Bois reference, right? Yeah, so he talks about race as a veil. And, and um, for a long time, in my scholarly pursuits, I've wondered, what is the veil? And Du Bois is very abstract about it. Is it in my head? Mm. Is it in the white person's head? Is it something that we two produce together? Do I need to be in communication with someone right, who believes they are white to produce the veil? <clears throat> and so uh, that, that's one of the things that this poem is talking about. I get this idea of one who believes they are white from Ta-Nehisi uh -huh. is Between the World and Me. And Toni Morrison very insightfully talks about the Africanist presence in, in the white imagination. And I often think... What is what constitutes the Anglo presence in the black imagination? Mm. And, it, you know, and these are <clears throat> these are kind of scholarly questions that one can't really <laughs> ask in polite, <laughs> polite society. And I, you know, you, you point out the, the intimacy. I know this guy, me, the reader, that is. I know this guy, I know both of these men very deeply, and they know one another very deeply, right? And, and so there's this, this, this pretense that 
we are nothing alike. We have nothing in common. How we come from entirely different worlds. No, we created this world together. Right? This dynamic is something that we both put a lot of effort into. Mm-hmm. You know, again, materially, this is not uh, clearly you know, the, the, the African-American gets the, the short end of the stick in, in terms of the material benefits of that relationship. But we're both in minefields. So many caveats that one has to kind of heap on. Yeah. Right. But I am really interested sort of intellectually in carving out a space for myself on on the page where I can ask these kinds of questions that hopefully will not make my reader assume that I am equating blackness and whiteness. Right. Or, or, you know, creating kind of um, false equivalencies uh, and and denying, you know, the material histories that that attach. But intellectually, this is these are the questions I'm asking. But I think that's what's what I found so powerful about your book is that it tackles scholarly questions, mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. but it does so in a way mm-hmm. that is not scholarly at all. Like right. you use tools like this scene that we can all right. imagine, you know, we've mm-hmm. all been, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've all been there, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, sure. one side or the other, you know, or observing, you yeah, know. Yeah. And you also use the tool of um, uh, a play. You know, there are several poems that are kind of in, in the shape of a play yeah. uh, with stage directions and, you know, and so on. And that, too, really creates this kind of unveiling right of this mm-hmm. scripted interaction that Absolutely. we just keep recreating different Absolutely. actors same yeah. play you yeah know? yeah i mean it's irving goffman right the well dramaturgical model of social interaction so i mean that the the shakespeare line all the world's a stage right but that we are performing our roles mm-hmm. and i take to heart this notion is something that my parents gave me, which I'm very grateful for, is the idea that if, and again, I want to be careful here, if someone gets inside my head, it's because I let them. And this is, I, you're right, I know, yeah, right? It's yeah, tricky. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. It is tricky. Uh, I was in Dakar uh, a couple of years ago. I, I, again, the, the cosmopolitan black wood excites me about being in the world outside of the, the West, that is, mm-hmm. is that I can see a lot of the different ways that blackness is experienced and, and expressed. And uh, one of the participants in the conference said very plainly, you know, I don't understand why... Black Americans are uh, are so upset. I I would never let racism bother me. <laughs> it just wouldn't affect me. And yeah, that's that's absurd. We 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 laugh, uh, but I I understand where it's coming from. I understand that the the world that he sees does not have that load on the shoulders that I was talking about, you know, a while back. And so I, I don't want to suggest that. One can very simply turn off the problems of the world. But I am interested, again, in the veil. What part of this relationship do I have control over? In any 
you know, my certainly in, in my marriage and in, you know, my relationship with my kids, in every fight, we both have something to carry. So there was a time when I would very confidently say that person has done this to me and I was a, a, a helpless victim, a passive victim in, the, in that relationship. In the cases that I'm thinking about, I was very much an active participant, right? And then this work that I've done for quite a few years now is a recovering alcoholic, you know, with my therapist has revealed to me how active I actually was and how, how much, how invested I was in the, in the very outcomes that I you know, lamented and, and decried. Again, in no way am I suggesting <laughs> that the experience of race, gender, and sexuality are in any way equivalent. But in, in, from an intellectual perspective, I'm curious, I am interested in to what, into in, at least asking the question, what do we get out of it? <laughs> It's such a great question, because yeah, yeah. like in this poem, you know, there's this hesitation almost this moment where you're like, I guess this is where I make a joke. Right. This right. is where I do that so that he yeah. doesn't feel as uncomfortable. I know this hackneyed yeah. performance. Yeah. I've been here dozens of times, yeah. more certainly more than that. Yeah. Um, I know it. He knows it. And again, I'm interested in making that silent discourse legible. Right. You know the dance. You know what we're doing. We know the rules and the yes and improv. And we're we are both engaged in it. I want to ask you about your father, if that's okay. Sure, of course, yeah. It's been almost eight years now that mm -hmm. he died. Yeah. And for people who haven't read the book, Air Traffic, you know, uh, what was he like? What were you like together? So again, um, I think this is probably the, the root, one of the root relationships that I'm referring to when I say we both had something invested in the, in the dynamic. You know, so I, I grew up blaming my father Right. He was you know, this kind of um, larger than life, b blaming in, in a complex kind of admiring, loathing, shameful, you know, all the emotions that I projected onto him. Uh, I come to learn at an advanced age now that that I needed him to be these things, whether he, you know, to whatever extent. He was. I. I needed him to be superlative. I needed him to be, um, a, a kind of caricature of the reality, um, because it took a lot of weight off of me. It allowed me not to do the kind of personal work that um, it, it allowed me not to 
to take responsibility for, right, my own attitudes. And I actually, I think I, I asked myself somewhere in the, in the book, you know, how much of um, how much of my attitudes are, um, are are mine, and how much did I inherit from from him? My father, being the generation that he was, had some loathsome attitudes about women, and shamefully, I inherited those. I mean, he would deride me as this uh, sensitive, you know, evolved guy, you know. Um, I still recognize the imprint of, of the logic of his um, <laughs> backwards-ass thinking. Um, and there's something also... Uh, painful in a, in, a, in a grief sense in that realization. Because as I'm sort of unpeeling myself from his attitudes, I am also letting him go. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. And again, you know, what am I responsible for? I'm, 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 in many respects, I'm responsible for taking on his attitudes because, you know, again, that's what I needed him to be. And by allowing him his faults, I'm allowing him to be the complex individual that we all are and not the, the, um, um, you know, whatever figment of my imagination I, I, I needed him to be. Uh, okay, so... But, you know, blaming our parents is also a way of holding on to... Oh, uh, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, it is a way of absolving ourselves or not having to look too closely... Right. And and think what, as you said in that, you know, about that poem uh, about the the theater tickets, you know, what do I get out of sustaining mm -hmm. this type of interaction? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know what what I found so uh, remarkable in in just imagining what it must have been like for you. So okay, your dad dies while you're finishing up air traffic, mm, oh, yeah. which is about him, <laughs> you know, and and you're not going to rewrite the whole book, obviously. But now, you know, we're like eight years on. Mm. And one big project of the book was that project of peeling yourself mm. away from him and trying to be like, okay, but who am I? And I'm wondering in these eight years that have passed since mm. Air Traffic came out, where are you with that process mm -hmm. of individuating from him? Um, much further along. I, I think mm. I'm... I'm uh, you know, one should always be suspicious of of <laughs> declaring what's you know, mental, I think emotional. I think I'm, I'm there. there. I'm there. I've done it. Um, but I, I do. I am confident that I'm in a place that is much healthier for me than had been. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm. I, I think in this book, I. 
am consciously using my father as, you know, as I'm, I, I'm calling him Bacchus, right? Um, uh, do I call him anything else? Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm using him as a symbol in this book more consciously, right? I'm not trying, I'm not uh, trying to trick myself into believing that I'm actually representing the man. Mm. Ah, that's so interesting because that's such a big question about memoir writing in mm. general, right? Like what is your relationship to, especially after time has passed and you have some distance from mm. the work, what is your relationship to the you that you had to create in this memoir, this yeah. character, you yeah. know? Yeah. And what is your relationship to your f you, the character, your father in the memoir? Yeah. You know? um, so my teacher at Columbia would always say, you make yourself a character. And I was, again, very conscious of the, the fact that the Greg Pardlow that I was constructing in the memoir was as much a, a figment as, the, um, as the, the father was. But I nonetheless believed I was getting at some, or uh, no, I, I believe that I wanted to get at some truth about my father. I think where I am now is I'll never get at a truth about him. I have truths about me that exist in the way that I had constructed him. And, and again, there's a, a kind of uh, letting go in admitting that the man will forever be opaque. And that process where he's become, or you've acknowledged mm. that he will forever be opaque, do you feel closer or further away from him because of that? I, I feel more at peace with him, yeah. right? Because I'm not, I mean, it's, it's um, Keats's uh, uh, negative capability. I, I don't have this kind of uh, reaching after, what is, what is the line now? Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting it because I'm trying to remember it. But this annoying reaching after fact, right? I, I don't need to know. And so there's a, there's a piece in, in acknowledging the complexity and accepting that complexity and allowing it to, to be. Do you think he had to die for you to get there? Uh, I hope not, but uh, I would say probably Yeah. Can we read one last poem? Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. It's the one on page uh, 82, Convertible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of dad. So let me read this. Convertible. My pop let me steer when I was small enough to snug between his belly and the wheel. Any random intersection, he might hoist me across the handbrake onto his lap to pilot the wagon before returning me to earth. As I got older, he'd make me steer 
while he lit a smoke or shed his jacket. His ashes arrived in a cardboard carton with shipping labels and barcode, heavy enough to trigger the seatbelt alarm as we clipped home, honeysuckle in the air, from the post office. A reasonable person would have put the box on the floor. But I, you know already, don't you? I held him in my lap. You're mine, I told the box of dad dust, lifting my hands occasionally, reckless to the wind, tempting the evening, swinging our private chariot of steel and bone. Thank you. Thanks. Gregory Pardlow is the author of three poetry collections, Totem, winner of the 2007 American Poetry Review Hanekman First Book Prize, Digest, for which Pardlow won a Pulitzer in 2015, and Spectral Evidence. He also wrote a memoir titled Air Traffic. He's received fellowships from the New York Public Library's Cullman Center, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Kaveh Kahnem Foundation, the McDowell Artists Colony, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Pardlow is poetry editor at Virginia Quarterly Review, co-director of the Institute for the Study of Global Racial Justice at Rutgers University, and visiting associate professor of practice in literature and creative writing at NYU Abu Dhabi. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Helena de and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.